0: Get your entire podcast library hosted at the Podcaster Matrix. Podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast seems in my office, the default diagnosis by many healthcare professionals and patients presenting with lower leg pain with exertion is shin splints. It's an easy thing to fall back on as it's a common problem, but certainly not the only problem that causes exertional lower leg pain. I've had a special interest in exertional compartment syndrome and exertional leg pain in runners, and that's an area that I've learned to come to specialize in is that exertional compartment syndrome diagnosis. It's really an interesting problem. I still don't think we have a definitive clear reason why it occurs. However, we do have several theories out there. So today on the podcast, we're going to cover exertional compartment syndrome with a colleague who also has a special interest in this problem and is looking into some novel approaches to treating it. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Finhoff. Dr. Finhoff is the Chief Medical Officer for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Finoff has published over 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals and has authored multiple book chapters. He has been a faculty member or course director for numerous national and international conferences and previously served on the boards for the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Dr. Finoff's clinical interests are broad and include multiple sports medicine topics including advanced diagnostic and interventional ultrasound and exertional leg pain. Welcome to the podcast, John. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Mark. Absolutely. And I'm glad that we finally got you. I know we were trying to touch base and get this done over the summer, but obviously the Olympics took a little precedence there for you, which is fine and great. Uh, I'm glad to have you on now and glad that things turned out well at the Olympics. I'm really looking forward to this discussion today with you. We've got lots of things we could cover today, but just before we begin talking about some of your specific publications about exertional compartment syndrome and some of your novel treatment approaches Can you give our listeners like a little brief summary of what exactly exertional compartment syndrome is and how a patient may present with this problem?
1: Exertional compartment syndrome, specifically chronic exertional compartment syndrome, is where while you exercise, you start having increased blood flow that's shunted to that muscle so it can deliver more nutrients to that muscle and and keep it going for longer. As you get more blood flow to that area, you get swelling in that muscle as it becomes engorged with blood. And you have a layer of connective tissue that sits on the surface of muscles, and often it connects to bone as well. So you have this tissue layer around the muscle and bone on one side, and the muscle is almost like in a sack. And so as the muscle is swelling inside of the sack, because the fibrous tissue on the outside called fascia and the bone can't really stretch that much, as the muscle tries to swell, it increases the pressure inside of it and people experience pain. That pain occurs while you're exercising. It's usually at a specific intensity and duration of exercise. And it can be a deep aching, sometimes associated with numbness and tingling. And it can become so severe that you just can't continue exercising, it's so bad. And then when you rest, it goes away because the muscle swelling goes away and the pressure inside of the muscle is gone. We don't know exactly why it hurts, uh, but it does. And it definitely shuts people down.
0: And, you know, my experience with this, it typically seems to affect runners more than any other athlete that I've seen. I have had a couple of swimmers with this. We're not going to talk about this today, but there's the less common compartment syndrome in the forearm that we see in oftentimes motocross, sometimes some cyclists and baseball players. I've seen that as well, but that's, that's certainly less common, but something to think about with upper extremity pain. But is that kind of your experience? It's mostly a runner's problem.
1: I would say that that is the most common group that I see it in. But just like you, I've seen it in a lot of different sports activities. And those activities, if you're looking at lower extremity, they usually do involve running. But basketball, soccer, lacrosse, all of these different sports that can be multidirectional on uneven surfaces. And, And so they'll get compartment syndrome in various places in their leg.
0: What's your preferred way of diagnosing exertional compartment syndrome? We know there's kind of like a gold standard out there. There are some people who use kind of a non-invasive way where they're doing imaging. What do you like to do?
1: There are a number of different ways of diagnosing this. I'd say that the gold standard is where you take a baseline pressure inside of a muscle or a compartment specifically, and a compartment has several muscles in it. And the outer part of that compartment is covered by fascia, which is that tough connective tissue I was talking about before and often some bone. But essentially, you take a fairly large needle, you numb up the skin, but you don't wanna put numbing medication down inside of the muscle because that could fictitiously elevate the pressure. But you numb up the skin so it's not painful when this larger needle goes through the skin. And you push this larger needle into the muscle and it has fluid that goes through the needle into that muscle and then to a pressure transducer inside of this needle, this device. And and it tells you what the pressure is inside of that compartment. So you measure the pressure before somebody exercises. So they're at rest and they shouldn't be symptomatic at that time. And then you measure it within one minute after exercise and at five minutes after exercise. You can also do continuous monitoring, but most people will do it at this pre-exercise and then one minutes and five minutes after exercise. And you have normal limits on what that pressure is. And so if somebody does not have compartment syndrome, then they'll stay below these specific pressures. And if they do have exertional compartment syndrome, then they'll go above these pressures. So that's, that's the gold standard. It unfortunately is invasive. It's uncomfortable poking a needle into that area and they're sore afterwards. So there are some non-invasive means of doing this including doing pre and post exercise in an MRI and doing an MRI scan of it and using various techniques, you can determine how much swelling is occurring in that muscle and therefore indirectly imply what the pressure would be in that spot. Unfortunately, with the MRI evaluations, it's only really been validated in in a few of the compartments, so not all of the compartments, and it's harder to exercise inside of an MRI for certain compartments. So MRI is reasonable for some, but not for all. And often before a surgeon or somebody else like myself is going to do a more invasive procedure, they do want to have that gold standard test to make sure that they're not doing an invasive procedure that has potential complications associated with it in somebody who doesn't actually have the condition.
0: Yeah, I've I've used the MRI, the pre and post sparingly, part just because it is challenging to schedule that, because you're having to schedule the the pre exertional MRI and then have them exercise and way we've done it at our institution is near where they do the test typically is they have a, a stairwell and they'll have the person run up and down the stairwell and try and reproduce symptoms that way. And then they'll, mm. they'll stick them back in the scanner. But you, you, you know, as well as I do, that can be very variable when someone reproduces their symptoms. Sometimes people can get it very quickly and sometimes it can take people 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I've even had some patients longer than that to truly get their pressures elevated to reproduce symptoms. And then you got to stick them back in the scanner. So that's taken a big chunk of time out of uh, an MRI schedule. So it gets a little bit challenging. They kind of balk a little bit when we try and schedule that. But I did have a patient, unfortunately, when we did the actual traditional compartment pressure measurements who got syncopal during that and just was not in a good enough state to go and exercise afterwards. So we had to abort the post-exercise testing, and then we wound up just kind of doing it with the MRI instead. So it was one of those. He was just, just someone who was just was very, very apprehensive about needles and, and did not do well with the test. And I, I'm very thankful for the transducer device because... I can't imagine doing the compartment pressure measurements the way they used to, where it was with the indwelling needle, I believe, and they used to hook it up to a blood pressure cuff is the way I read that it used to be done.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was definitely like a torture device.
0: <laughs> yeah, it just seems like it would be really impractical and difficult to do. So I, I like the one little step, take the pressure measurement and then then move on and, and then go to the next compartment and then get them exercising without something still sticking in their leg. It makes it a lot easier.
1: No, oh, absolutely, absolutely. There are some less painful indwelling sort of plastic catheters that do a fairly good job now that you can leave in, but that they don't have as much data on on what that means. And so I think at this point doing the standard pre- and post-exercise compartment pressure testing is is probably the best way to go. We did use the MRI protocol a lot at Mayo, um, where we actually had an in-MRI exercise device where people could pull up and push down on their legs in order to essentially mimic exercise of Hmm. specific compartments. And so they didn't have to leave the MRI scanner, and it was built out of plastic, so it was not ferromagnetic. Hmm. That worked really quite well. And we have some really good data on that specifically for the anterior and lateral compartments, not as much for the posterior compartment, but along with that, you can also do an MRA and look for popliteal artery entrapment using Fiesta imaging. And so there's all sorts of cool stuff you can do at the same time if you use that in MRI exercise protocol. And then there's also some data on doing some ultrasound measurements, where you look at the compartment thickness before and after exercise, and if you have a greater than 20% change in the AP diameter of a specific compartment, then that's highly suggestive of of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. However, that's only been reported in small case control study, and so I think it requires some more validation, and it was only in one compartment. But, you know, some interesting stuff out there.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I'm curious for you, John, since you're one of the gurus of ultrasound in the country that, do you do your compartment pressure measurements? Do you do that ultrasound guided or do you do it blindly?
1: A long time ago, I did it with ultrasound guidance. And then we did a study in cadavers and had people use surface landmarks and then use ultrasound. And we found that We weren't hitting any neurovascular structures. We were in the compartments that we predicted we would be in very accurately with surface landmarks. So different than ultrasound guided injections, where you're typically trying to find a very specific small target, putting a needle into a large compartment, it was pretty, pretty easy to do. So while I did originally do that, I did a study that proved that you don't have to. (laughs) Yeah. So is that a published study? Because I
0: haven't seen that. Yep. Oh, yeah. great. I'll have to look that up and I'll make sure to put that in our show notes then for sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, that's good. I I'm, I'm uh, curious about that. So Mm -hmm. Awesome. So, you know, I I've been really interested to pick your brain for a while, you know, just in the world of exertional compartment syndrome. And in my my personal interest just with this problem started with fellowship, of course. It was one of those see one, do one, teach one kind of things. And literally I saw probably two during fellowship, did one. And then when I started my practice out of fellowship, it was just an area that I really had just an interest in. I, I liked seeing runners and I really liked the problem of exertional leg pain. And that differential and how it is truly more than just shin splints. So, I, I became one of those few people who performed the test in the St. Louis area. And so, what's really spurred your interest for this?
1: I'm an endurance athlete. That's my background from an athletic standpoint. I've always had an interest in any problems that happen in endurance sports. And in cyclists, which that was my main sport was cycling. There's a thing called external iliac artery endofibrosis and some other things that can cause exertional leg pain. So I was really doing a lot of research and learning about how to diagnose that. And as I was doing that, I just started getting interested in leg pain in general in a variety of sports. And the differential diagnosis for it is broad. And I think people get focused on one particular cause, and that's what they look for. And if it's not that, then they are just not quite sure what the problem is. Or if it is that they forget to look for other causes, because you can certainly have more than one thing going on. Mm -hmm. As I was starting to do this more and more and developing a, a protocol of how I evaluate people for exertional leg pain, I was able to identify a lot of problems that were being missed, mainly because of uh, lack of, of doing a thorough workup. I started getting a lot of referrals, and, and that built my practice in exertional leg pain, and, and I ran a multidisciplinary practice at Mayo Clinic that involved orthopedic surgery, neurology, vascular medicine, vascular surgery, and sports medicine. And we would have everybody get a very, very thorough workup, and based on what we would find... That's the treatment options that we would provide. And often it was more than one treatment. And so I really like interesting, complex problems that when you can identify a solution and and make a huge difference in somebody's life, you know, that, that makes a difference in my life also. That's why I got into medicine was to use my brain and help people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, that's, I mean, that's part of the reason why I kind of like that exertional leg pain. It keeps you on your toes a little bit, and it breaks the the mundane nature of seeing lots of anterior knee pain in the office too. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so it certainly <laughs> helps with that. But you know, you mentioned kind of the coexisting things, and let's just kind of touch on that a little bit because I know you were part of a recent study that was published in CJSM last year that showed a high percentage of people with popliteal artery entrapment in those diagnosed with anterior compartment exertional compartment syndrome. So. I was honestly personally surprised by how prevalent that was in the patients you studied. I'm assuming that was part of this multidisciplinary clinic that you got those patients from?
1: Absolutely. At Mayo, one of the common, and it was because we developed this specific technique, one of the common tests that we did for many, many years on anybody who came in with exertional leg pain was this in MRI exertional leg pain protocol. And with that, it was looking for chronic exertional compartment syndrome, but also part of it was doing what's called a Fiesta image and looking for popliteal artery entrapment. Since that particular diagnostic study was validated in anterior compartment patients, that was the only thing that you could really take from that study But we looked back at all of our records and in people who were getting an exertional MRI who had anterior chronic exertional compartment syndrome, 50% of them also had popliteal artery entrapment syndrome. Now, if you look at popliteal artery entrapment syndrome, it's actually relatively common, and I would say it's probably more common than chronic exertional compartment syndrome and where it's being compressed in your popliteal fossa, which is just the back of the knee. That's before the popliteal artery divides into an artery that runs in the front of your leg and an artery that runs in the back of your leg. And so you can have pain in the anterior or front of the leg or the posterior or back of the leg when you compress your popliteal artery up in the back of your knee. It just depends on which location has a higher oxygen demand, that's the one that's going to scream at you from a lack of oxygen being delivered to that area or lack of blood flow to that area. People with anterior leg pain can absolutely have popliteal artery entrapment, and that can be their presenting symptom, particularly if they're a runner that has a lot of heel striking in their their particular running technique.
0: We will be back with more from U.S. Olympic Committee's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. John Finnoff, after a quick break.
1: You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at PodcasterMatrix.com.
0: Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back discussing chronic exertional compartment syndrome with Dr. John Finnoff. You've published a couple case reports here recently on some various ultrasound guided techniques you've done percutaneous needle fenestration, and then ultrasound guided fasciotomies. Uh, Obviously, you know, we typically, these are things that we've routinely sent to surgeons to do fasciotomies on. So I'm curious as far as kind of talk to me through a little bit about what inspired you to try this and a little bit about the procedure you've done.
1: In the latter part of my current career, I would say that I really started to focus my research on developing ultrasound-guided surgical techniques, and there are a bunch of different surgical techniques that we've worked on, and and if you do a PubMed lit search with my name, you'll find um, some different interesting, hopefully interesting to you, ultrasound-guided surgical techniques that we developed, but uh, some of those surgical techniques are specific for exertional leg pain. The way that I typically will develop a ultrasound-guided surgical technique is I will look at a problem that's either common or common in my practice. And based on the prevalence of that problem, I know that I will have a pretty significant impact if I can develop a less invasive technique to treat that problem if it's currently being treated surgically. So then I'll look at how is it currently being done from a surgical technique standpoint? And is there a way of doing this with ultrasound guidance? Now, the anterior and lateral compartments of the leg, so in the front and the outer part of the leg, those compartments, the fascia that is on the surface of those is really close to the surface. And the way that they do the surgery is they do a very, you know, pretty long incision in the skin, even when they're trying to do it in a relatively short manner. It's still quite large. And then they cut the fascia from the top of that compartment down towards the bottom of that compartment. So it leaves a large scar. There's a fairly high morbidity associated with it, meaning that there are a fair number of complications, whether that's from bleeding or a thing called a seroma formation or nerve injury or infection. And so I thought, is there a way of doing very small incision and then cutting the fascia since it's pretty close to the surface using some type of device with ultrasound guidance? And so there's a specific device called a meniscotome that uh, is used during arthroscopic surgeries in the knee to remove or cut some of the meniscus, which is the cartilage in your knee. This one that I I use is a 3-millimeter-sized meniscotome. That's the size of the end of this little thing. So you do a 3-millimeter incision, and then you stick this device underneath the skin use ultrasounds to guide it down to the fascia, which is usually you know, a half to a full centimeter below the skin, but pretty close. And then you get it on either side. So it's it's a V-shaped meniscus tone. So the end of it is almost like a little scissor. And you get one part deep to the fascia, one part on the superficial part or the closer to the surface part of the fascia. And then you just run it straight down the fascia, almost like scissors and wrapping paper use ultrasounds to make sure that you don't hit blood vessels, you don't hit nerves, and you certainly anesthetize this before you do it. But you can run this uh, tom right from the top to the bottom and then pull it out. And then you put a little skin glue on that three millimeter incision, wrap it in an ACE wrap to provide compression, reduce your risk of bleeding. But your risk of infection, bleeding, seroma, uh, nerve injury, all of these different things are dramatically reduced because you're just cutting so much less tissue. So after I, you know, kind of identified what the problem was, looked at the surgical technique, figured out how this might be able to be done with ultrasound, then you practice it in cadavers and you kind of figure out is this feasible? And if it looks like it, then you study it. And so we published studies demonstrating that for the front and the outer compartment of the leg, you can do an ultrasound guided fasciotomy that cuts the same length as a surgery 100% of the time. In about 20% of cases, you might leave a small segment of about one centimeter of fascia intact, but the rest of it that's about 22 and a half centimeters in length is all cut. And no major neurovascular structures were cut in that. And so once you've proved in a, in a cadaveric specimen and you've done multiple procedures in that to ensure that you, it's, it looks like you're it's safe and it's, it's able to do what you're trying to you're, – you're cutting what you want to cut – Then you translate it into humans and you start doing those procedures in a person and talking to them, of course, about the fact that this is an experimental procedure, typically doing it under an IRB, an Institutional Review Board approval. And see is it safer than the standard procedure? Are people recovering faster than the standard procedure? Do they have less morbidity associated with it? And so I have published a case report specifically on the anterior and lateral compartments, but we've preliminary data on 50 compartments in people with a median age of 21 and a half years old, um, and following them up for a median time frame of close to six months. There were no complications. The pain during the procedure was a three out of 10. Pain over the next 24 hours was a five out of 10. Within they were out of school or off work for an average of one and a half days. And they returned to full and restricted activity in 10 days. And if you look at the research on surgeries, it's taking an average of 8 to 12 weeks to get back to activity. So if you're looking at a week and a half versus two to three months, and this is something that's done in an outpatient setting, and it has, based on these numbers, minimal pain and the complication rate is quite low, although certainly we need to have more research on it, that's very, very promising preliminary data for this particular procedure.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. My jaw dropped a little bit when I saw the one week to 10 days kind of thing afterwards. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty darn quick with this. So, yeah, and this is a good example of, and I hope those that are, that are fellows and and newly sports medicine attendings really listen close to how John kind of described how he thought through this problem and, and went through it. It wasn't just I have ultrasound. I, I know how to do this. I'm going to go try it on a patient for the first time and see how it goes. So this was a pretty rigorous way of him going through it. And I will make sure to have the links to those articles with his cadaveric studies because they're, they're really interesting to read through. So I, I appreciated that. I, I think it was pretty interesting. Now, you, you mentioned you have some six-month follow-up data. I, I have a couple questions for you on that. First of all, any significant recurrences of pain in these patients?
1: Nobody in that group had any recurrence of their symptoms, but I will say that of all the people that I've done, I have had a few people that did have recurrence. And so by a few, I I mean two of those two. One was kind of coming to the end of their career, and so they didn't want to do anything about it. They were a collegiate athlete because if they did just other activities, it didn't bother them anymore. And the other one I offered to send to get a regular fasciotomy and, and that individual, they were like, no, I mean, I, I, don't want, I don't want to take so much time off of school and sports. And this worked really well for me and it lasted nearly a year and, and I'd rather just do this again. And so I repeated the procedure for that individual.
0: Yeah. Now, the other question I would have for you, just in light of the other study we talked about, were these patients that you had already assessed and were purely exertional compartment syndrome with no popliteal artery entrapment, or were any of these people coexisting problems?
1: The ones in this particular study that I was talking about, they were purely chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So they did not have concomitant diagnoses.
0: Gotcha. That's helpful to know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I will say you know, in sort of in a separate discussion, one of the other things that you can certainly do is botulinum toxin injections to treat chronic exertional compartment syndrome, but you can also use it to treat popliteal artery entrapment syndrome. If you choose to use that treatment, then you can do a concomitant Botox or botulinum toxin injection for chronic exertional compartment syndrome and also treat their popliteal artery entrapment syndrome if it is a functional popliteal artery entrapment syndrome and it's not due to an anatomic anomaly. The other thing is is that I've combined the fasciotomy that I do under ultrasound guidance with a botulinum toxin injection to treat popliteal artery entrapment at the same time. Now, the issues surrounding botulinum toxin procedures Number one, if you have somebody with all four compartments of both legs, you, you just almost can't use enough botulinum toxin in order to treat all of those without going over the maximum dose. So that's, that is a problem. Number two, it doesn't last that long. So um, there certainly have been some case reports of lasting up to two years, but in general, botulinum toxin for anybody who treats spasticity or uses it for other problems or other conditions you know, the, the duration is more along the lines of four to six months. And that's my experience in chronic exertional compartment syndrome. They're coming back. It's a very expensive out-of-pocket procedure. You know, it's, it's got the nice part of it's just a shot. It takes two to three weeks to really kick in, and it lasts roughly about four months. But it is expensive, and it does require typically repeat injections. So it's not a great permanent fix.
0: Have you used the option uh, that's been reported primarily with military recruits of gate retraining to try and Absolutely. help reduce? Yeah.
1: From my standpoint, you always want to try the thing that is the least invasive and has the highest degree of efficacy before you start jumping into any type of invasive procedure. Because, you know, I'm going to knock on wood and say that my experience so far has been really good with this. But if you do enough of any procedure you are going to have complications and you can make somebody worse and the more you cut the more risk you have associated with it so this is not a benign procedure and it and it absolutely needs to be treated with respect so if somebody comes into me and they have solely anterior chronic exertional compartment syndrome and their sport is a distance running sport it's not multidirectional then I absolutely will do gait retraining and if somebody has multiple compartments and they do a multidirectional sport, then I talk to them about how important is this sport to you and is, you know, would you rather do activity modification as opposed to any type of procedure. But one of the problems with gait retraining is that uh, it's really only been shown to be effective in the anterior compartment and it's shifting from being a heel striker to a mid to forefoot striker. If somebody is a different compartment, then it hasn't necessarily been shown at this point to be effective for those other compartments. And the other thing is, is that if you're not doing a sport where you can just run on your forefoot, then it won't work. So if you're doing a distance run on a nice paved surface, you can do that gait retraining. But if you're a field sport athlete or a court sport athlete where you're doing multiple directions, you can't run on your toes you are to decelerate and to change direction, you have to heel strike. And so you can't really do the same gait retraining in those athletes. And those are athletes that I see this in commonly. You know, there are pros and cons to the gait retraining, but if somebody fits into the right criteria, I'm absolutely doing that before I'm considering any type of invasive procedure.
0: I've talked to lots of patients about that, and I found that to be a hard take by patients to go down that treatment option of doing gate retraining, just because we do know that it takes a long time and it takes investment on their part to do it. At least for the patients that I've seen, most of them obviously want to have the quicker fix, so the procedure to them seems more attractive. Uh, How has that been for you as far as trying to convince people to go down the gate retraining route?
1: Yeah, most people are willing in my experience have been willing to try it. but I also have to say, in my practice, I didn't see very many people who hadn't tried it by the time they got to me. So I had some people who hadn't really gone through a workup, but boy, a lot of the people that came to me, it was because they had been through everything and they were they're ready to have some type of interventional sure. uh, procedure done.
0: yeah. No, that makes sense. I I just it's it's been I I always give that as an option because I'd like I'd rather do that rather than getting a surgery and scars on my leg. But hey, uh I know everybody's got their own different priorities as far as kind of where it's gonna be and what time I can invest in this in order to try and help make this better. So I, I certainly have had some takers and I think it's been successful. I think it's just it's 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 been harder in my experience to get people to bite on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And people do in general, I'd say that anybody who feels like they can get a quick fix, they're, they're going to go that quick fix route. Now, surgery is not a quick fix. Right. <laughs> so right. that's what I talk to people about. I, sure. I tell them that this is season ending and you know, there's up to a 20% morbidity associated with it. So you just, they have to go into it with the one in five chance of knowing that it's either not going to work or they're going to have a complication and it's going to take two to three months to get better. That's some of the argument I use to inform them.
0: Sure, absolutely. Do you think that we've got anything going down the horizon? I mean, you've honestly, uh, uh, following some of this research, you've been the one who's kind of pushed the envelope here a little bit. I don't know that I've seen many others that are outside of doing some of these types of techniques with either Botox or things like that. Anything new on the horizons with diagnosis, potentially treatment of exertional compartment syndrome, maybe in this upcoming decade, anything that you have any thoughts on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, some of the issues around specifically talking about ultrasound guided procedures The meniscotome is pretty good, but it's not designed for this. And so I think we're going to start designing better tools that are a little bit more user friendly and work better for the specific procedure that, that you're doing. So that's going to happen. I would love to have a tool that can provide, since I'm doing this under local anesthetic, If you do local anesthetic in advance, and then you're doing the procedure and you come to an area that hurts that individual, then you're having to re-anesthetize that spot. And you can either leave the meniscotome where it is, and then guide a needle down to the spot where that meniscotome is and do your injection and then take the needle out and then start the procedure again from that spot. But I think it'd be ideal to have a tool that while you're cutting, if somebody has a sharp spot, there's a lumen within that tool that you can inject local anesthetic directly into that spot. Hydrodissection is something that probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but for those of you who are not, essentially it's injecting fluid out the end of a needle or some type of cutting device, and it pushes tissue apart and essentially dissects out an area. And with uh, fasciotomy, as you're cutting down along the fascia, it's nice to create a little bit of a fluid buffer between the subcutaneous tissues, which is the fatty tissue that sits on the fascia. If you push fluid into that area, it lifts the fatty tissue off of the fascia, and therefore you don't cut the fatty tissue. Fatty tissue obviously has some vasculature and nerves that travel in it, and so it could cause some bleeding or nerve complications if you're cutting the fatty tissue, so you can make it safer and less uncomfortable and cut even less tissue if you could hydrodissect. And anesthetize while you're guiding your cutting device down the fascia. So I think that a lot of those things are going to help refine the technique. And while I've done studies on the anterior, lateral, superficial, and deep posterior compartments, the interlateral and superficial compartments are pretty easy, but the deep posterior compartment is really hard with the currently available tools. I think ultrasound is going to have better resolution and allow us to see more structures as we move into the future, just because technology is going to improve. And again, developing a tool that will allow more accuracy in the cutting will allow you to do more deep procedures. Because right now, the deep posterior compartment, when we did our study, which is PM&R Journal in August of of this year, we found that we could do a continuous release of the superficial posterior compartment 90% of the time. But in the deep posterior compartment, we achieved our target length 60% of the time, but it was a continuous cut without any segments that were left intact only 30% of the time. We really need a better tool. We need to be able to visualize that better. And if you're doing deeper procedures, you have more risk of complication with the neurovascular structures. So I think that's sort of the, the next frontier. And I guess finally, all of the stuff I've just been talking about is cutting. And I think that in ultrasound, there's a lot of ways of cutting things, whether it's a cutting thread, a needle, meniscotome. but we need to start figuring out how to repair. And when we can start repairing with ultrasound guidance, then we're going to be able to do some really, really cool procedures that are going to be, again, revolutionary for medicine.
0: So we're going to be looking out for that tool named the Fin-Off sometime in the future then, right?
1: (laughs) That that would be fun.
0: (laughs) So John, as we do with all of our guests, we like to end the podcast with what we call the Pearl of the Podcast. It's kind of the parting nugget of information you want our listeners to have as their take-home message. So John, what is your Pearl of the Podcast?
1: I think the biggest Pearl for me from this podcast is more than one thing can cause exertional leg pain. So when somebody comes in, look for a vascular cause look for chronic exertional compartment syndrome look for a neurologic cause those are the you know three top ones that are not bone or tendon so you need to rule out all of those different things and often you will find that there are multiple problems and if you know the different problems and you treat each of those you're going to be far more successful in your practice
0: Excellent. I would like to thank Dr. John Finnoff for joining us today to talk about chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We appreciate your five-star reviews and we would appreciate you telling a few of your colleagues about us. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. I truly appreciate it. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.